What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to Experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. Hey guys, this is Bill Allen, a.k.a. Crew Jones, and you are listening to Zach and Dustin on $2 Late Fee. Before there was IMDB.com, there was Zach and Dustin. You know those guys who think they know everything about a movie without having to go on the internet to look it up? That's us, but maybe only for the years 1981 through mid-1989. No, I'd say late 1978 through early 1992. (laughs) Either way, we know movies. And even more specifically, we know soundtracks from those movies. Yeah, this is $2 Late Fee with Zach and Dustin. This is the podcast where we pick a movie and soundtrack from our youth that we loved and see if it still holds up today. All in the spirit of positivity and togetherness. Thanks for listening. On to the show. Get ready to break the ice today on $2 Late Fee <laughs> with our guest Bill Allen, a.k.a. Crew Jones from Rad. Everyone's childhood hero appearing on the show. Uh, it's very exciting. It's also one of those that um, we had kind of in the works for a long time. We were like, when's Bill coming? Oh, he's here. And... Um, and yeah, you know it's 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 just it's just a good time to 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 suss out Rad. I don't have a lot to say about him because he says it all himself in this interview. A friend of the show, uh, Johnny Osborne, said, "You guys ever have Bill Allen on the show?" And I said, "Funny you say that because I really want to get him on." And he said, "Well, I can make that happen for you." So uh, thanks, Johnny, for for hooking us up with Bill. And, you know, Bill came on and talked about his life, uh, his friends in the business, and one in particular, Brandon Lee, which I think is very heartfelt. Um, And I think for everyone who's a fan, uh, Brandon will really appreciate some of the the things Bill has to say about his friend, his dear friend, Um, and so much more. I mean, there's there's a lot of good stuff in this interview that I think you're all going to appreciate and enjoy from the man who who is really truly following his bliss and doing what he uh doing what he loves in life hey doesn't uh doesn't bill also isn't he an author yeah he's got a great book out called my rad career and you can get it from his website all of those links will be in the show notes for this episode go get his book check it out it it is chocked full of the stories that he talks about on the show today and a whole lot more it's it's a great read. He goes balls out in that book, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> balls out, the original title of Rad, for all you trivia fans. So, yeah, put that in your pipe and enjoy the show. Where's that screeching sound? <laughs> because if you like what you hear in this interview, we've got even more Bill Allen uh, on our Patreon page. Coming up later on next month, 
Um, if you don't know what our Patreon page is all about, go check it out. Patreon slash $2 late fee. We've got great segments with celebrities, tales from the video store, so much more other hilarious content on there that you will definitely dig if you dig this. You dig that? I dig it. I dig it. I'm not going to add any more. Let's just get to Bill. Bill Allen, thanks for joining us on $2 Late Fee. This is awesome. Great name Welcome. for a show, guys. I, I'm glad to be here. Does does that uh, does that bring back any memories at all? Boy, uh, doesn't video it? Store days? Yeah, it, that was a thing. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you had to rush it back because you sure couldn't afford to buy one of those VHS tapes. What, were they a buck 50 or something crazy, you know, for a lot of the releases? So yep. it was uh, it was a different world more simple but yeah we hated to pay those late fees and we we were kind and re rewind the tapes you know the, all all these things that people don't even dream of anymore all that stuff yeah. now where people go uh wait you can't just i mean red box is like a thing of the past pretty much now at this point so uh yeah right i'm all for it man yeah i i like an uncluttered house you know but uh there are people who love the physicality of an LP, which are cool, obviously, or, you know, the even VHS, the, the artwork and, and uh, the, the presentation was all a part of it, I suppose. Oh, yeah, big time. Big Always, time. yeah. And actually, for, for decades, your movie, Rad, was unavailable, like, anywhere other than, like, a bootleg or, you know... Um, or a VHS tape, used VHS tape, but now it's it's pretty much all over the place, which is really really awesome. Uh, we actually just watched it, what a couple weeks ago, and it had been I, I watch it probably once a year, maybe maybe more. <laughs> but again, we were like, okay, let's do this, and to watch it on the the the, the you know remastered format and no glitches. I kind of like the glitches every now and then, to be honest with you. But uh, this, this is, it was a real treat to be able to watch it again. And like, and it's all it's digitally mastered glory. That's part of the charm. I thought it was pretty funny that uh, people were kind of upset at the graininess of the, of the look. And of course that's film. It's, that's, that's the impressionistic <laughs> kind of vibe of film. And I guess they, they thought we were going to actually go back and reshoot the movie in 4k. That's just not, that's not possible. So what? they went back and very carefully, <laughs> digitally shot every frame of film and then remastered it. And that's what you see. And it's beautiful. I mean, it's it was nice before the DVDs that I'd seen, but uh, it really brings out details that you could never see that, of course, really hardcore fans go nuts over. Rad was not your first movie you ever did, no, obviously. No. No, uh, I had done a few movies uh, up until that point. Uh, I started out as an actor in Dallas, Texas, and uh, did a couple of movies out of there. One was a very similarly themed movie to Rad called And They're Off, where I played a jockey, and I was on location in Lexington, Kentucky for six months and got world-class training. And uh, that was my entree into show business. I was still in my teens. 
And that gave me the ability to uh, move out to Los Angeles. But before I left Dallas, I also worked with uh, one of my personal heroes, uh, Robert Altman, who, uh, you know, mm, of course, yeah. Nash and um, McCabe and Mrs. Miller and, and uh, so many of uh, the films that I grew up watching. And so to be a part of that kind of gave me a lot of confidence that, that this is something that, that I could do because it seemed at the time an outrageous dream to leave Dallas, to move to Hollywood, basically with, and, and, and shoot for that dream. But I don't know. I kind of felt like the business chose me because it was not, it was not really on my radar that this was something possible. It was a distant dream. Wouldn't that be great? Yeah, I, I've got some interest and some capabilities in that arena, but I didn't have any tools or or any anybody taking me by the hand. And and so Providence just kind of scooped down and picked me up, and I went with it. And uh, I I decided to enjoy the ride early on. I decided that was the thing to latch onto is my joy, uh, because everything else was nice. so fleeting. And so disappointing. Yeah. So it's just go with what feels good, you know? And, and so that felt right to me. And I had the right mentors show up at the right time and people encouraging me when I needed it most. And I guess that more than anything got me out to Los Angeles was, was the people taking me by the hand going, you can do this. You can actually do this. And that includes uh, Brian O'Byrne, who is a famous character actor in the 60s and 70s did all the TV shows, Gunsmoke and the Munsters and you, you name them. So he was my first acting coach. And then uh, Miguel Ferrer, who we lost about four years ago, mm. a wonderful actor. We did our first movie yeah. together, the and the Rock movie, the horse racing movie, of course. And so he encouraged me to come out to Los Angeles. I stayed at his mother's house, the great Rosemary Clooney. Uh, so that was, that was my entree into Los Angeles. And it was a good one. What a great one. I mean, what a, what a, what a, oh my goodness. Uh, there, there are not many uh, young actors coming up that get that kind of like leg up, you know, immediately as far as just like, I imagine that gives you a lot, a lot of uh, extra confidence when you're, when you're arriving in LA and uh, these are your, these are your hosts. There's, there's another actor who got almost the, the same treatment, same movie and they're off. We did together. Miguel encourages both to come out at the same time. We both ended up at Miguel's mom's house and that, that some guy named George Clooney. So uh, that kind of him. Yeah, whatever. So that kind of encouragement, <laughs> what that, <a> dick. That, <laughs> that kind of encouragement. He wasn't in rad. No, whatever, you know, uh, <laughs> but I, I, I'm a big fan of the guy. And, and likewise. Yeah. He's just, he's a good guy. Hate him. He's a good guy. Yeah. I mean, but here's what people can't appreciate about George, and many don't know. We, we all want to be him or, you know, are jealous of him on a certain level until you realize he actually slept in a friend's closet for a time when he was out here, yeah. pre-ER days, and, and, which is basically homeless. You know? Yeah, we're talking Return of the Killer Tomato days, so. Pre that, yeah. Even. It, was at, it was at that time. <laughs> So again, people are jealous of that, but how many people are actually that brave to get by the, behind the strength of their convention, convictions like that? Now, he had other options. I saw his childhood home in, in uh, Cincinnati. It was fantastic. 
He could have stayed in his parents. <laughs> he could have stayed in his parents' basement the rest of his life. You know, literally. I mean, uh, come on. Yeah, it was a really nice house. Nick and 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 That's his wife. Yeah. Funny. So. So so yeah. Again, I I think having that that bravery and, and that just I'm going to do what what fills me up, what fills my soul bucket, and and, and take that as far as it can go. And I think that was. Uh, thematic and rad you know the whole follow your heart do what your gut tells you that whole thing really it's kind of true and it's kind of worked out for me well you you're you're first of all you're on the right show because Dustin and I are all about manifesting that destiny and you know really like my tagline on my emails always says follow your bliss because I'm a huge Joseph Campbell fan me too. um to the point where you know, if, if, if I could wear a deity around my neck, it would probably be a picture of him. That's right. Because uh, I think in many ways he's an inspiration. His, yeah. his words are inspirational. Nothing awkward or weird about that. No, nothing awkward or weird. <laughs> <laughs> you're getting to know me really fast right away. Um, but no, I, you're absolutely right. In, in fact, uh, for, on, a, on a personal side note, I, I love George Clooney. He's amazing. And Miguel Ferrer, I think, is one of those very underappreciated uh, actors for his body of work, his, the versatility, you know, oftentimes people will think of like, you know, one of the genre movies that he's done, but the man has been, had been in so many phenomenal films and never really had the opportunity to take the lead. Um, he was in a little known film called The Harvest, which I think is terrific. It's a great thriller uh, where he wakes up in Mexico missing his, one of his kidneys and mm -hmm. has to, basically track it down um and but but yeah he just so so talented and the fact that you had the opportunity to work with him and be in close relationship with him and have this connection from the get-go is a great way to kind of kickstart your career in a way it was unbelievable yeah he was a young lion and uh hyper talented came from a hyper-talented family. His dad won an Oscar for Cyrano de Bergerac, the great Jose Ferrer, who was also in that horse racing movie. And uh, <clears throat> so, yeah, being around that kind of heat and the people he was hanging out with, you either up your game or you, you walk out the door, man, because these are some big boys and, and they played rough ball. And, and if you couldn't hang, get out get out. So, so for some reason, uh, I, I guess I kind of had some Texas, Texas, you know, kind of cockiness or something. I was able to hang with that, <laughs> that crowd and I got bruised Everybody, you know, it, it was, uh, it was a bumpy ride, but it was, it was really young, excluding myself, very talented artists, you know, including not just George, but, uh, my, my great friend, Brandon Lee and, and his sensei, Mike Vandrell, and Lou Diamond Phillips, and my brother Sherman, Steve Lukather, uh, Melissa Etheridge. I mean, the list kind of goes on, and it sounds like I'm yeah. dropping names, but these are the people who I was hanging out with, and, and half of them were working, and half of them were trying to work. You know, so so there was that, there was that uh, generosity of spirit. The people who had made it seeing the people who were trying to and go, this is how it's done. In other words, uh, Lou Diamond Phillips, great friend of mine. And uh, he hit it 
early and he hit it big and his house became a hub of, of really fine artists. You know, I mean, if you could, if you could be a fly on that wall, it was, it was pretty special. So, uh, I was very lucky to be exposed to that crowd and, and, and for them to not just, uh, kind of put me aside They they actually were very encouraging. That's amazing. Was, was so uh, was Lou Diamond Phillips, you're saying like his house became like an artist commune? It kind of did. Yeah. He got early and divorced later on and he just kind of opened his doors to, uh, not only actors, but musicians, our band started out of that house. Literally. Um, we did a play with John Lee Hancock. Brandon was in that show too. And it was out about a blues band. And so we actually formed a blues band and started practicing in Lou's basement. And then he would just start singing and it eventually evolved into an actual really good band. And we toured the country and played Farm Aid. And, and uh, so, wow. it, yeah, it was one of those anything could happen <laughs> atmospheres. And, and our bass player ended up moving to Nashville and became a major force as a producer and songwriter out there. And there's talk about reforming the band. So there's, there's more fun in our future, I think. Oh, that's fantastic. I right love on. hearing that. I love hearing that. We, um, uh, both Dustin and I have a music background. It's all good. You, you may oh. hear a leaf blower on my end, so it's Thursday, but, um, well, we can always edit that out. Um, first of all, I, I, that music piece is really exciting to know about because we both, one piece of our show is the music in the movies uh, being such an integral part. And, and oftentimes in our shows, we, we choose a movie and it, always we choose a movie and a song hmm. from that movie uh, that stands out to us in some way. And what's, what is it about that song that connects with us? Um, have you, had you always been a musician up until that point or was that something you kind of took on in a later stage? Yeah, I, I was a little older when I got serious about music. I'm from Texas, Dallas, great music tradition texas blues is still my favorite kind of music and my favorite musicians come out nice. of there seems to be and so it was when i got that play and and actually had to learn an instrument i got serious about it and uh had a few different teachers and people started paying me to play so i i'm like well if i'm a professional <laughs> just by definition i should become professional like so i, I really did the best i could to to get my bag together and uh yeah it it worked out so it's an instrument i still play and love although i've, I've kind of switched to guitar now and I'm playing that constantly so i always have my head in the music one way or another what were you playing before guitar harmonica oh cool yeah blues harmonica and uh there's not a lot of those guys out there and the really good ones can can add a lot so great great blues tradition that I've tried to follow. And it's just a great instrument. Um, maybe 10 years ago now in the house of blues on sunset, uh, I saw war and Los Lobos. They, they did a double bill wow. and war was, uh, it wasn't the, 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 the original lineup, obviously, but their harmonica player is the original harmonica player. Lee Oscar. Hey, his man, he was, Oh, really? Yeah, sure. Oh, you do? Yeah, yeah. He's a major uh, manufacturer of harmonicas, and that's kind of what everybody plays now. And yeah, he's he's one of the oh, cool. masters and architects of, of great harmonica players. Yeah, when he, they were doing Tobacco Road, uh, they hit a, 
solo <laughs> and it was just like oh my gosh yeah. a friend of mine had never heard war ever she's yeah. much younger and she's like this is crazy this is so good i'm like yeah you're just getting they're just getting started so i'm not i'm not at that level even close but there are guys who can make it sound as good and as fluent and and as you know varied as any instrument out there i, I just try to keep it in the pocket and not look stupid <laughs> well, I was going to say, uh, at least you, you brought the music side out of Dallas versus uh, world-class wrestling. You could have been a pro wrestler from uh, the Von Erich days. Well, listen, I was exposed to that. I could not have participated, obviously. I weighed like 90 pounds at that point. But yeah, the, the Texas blues tradition is just uh, being a blues fanatic in Texas in the 70s would be like, being a jazz fanatic in Manhattan in the fifties. It's just where it was all happening. And I'm so lucky to not have not only lived through it, but survived that era era. Cause they're uh, they, they play rough out there. Well, yeah. Um, I'll share one more quick story of a, of a uh, I saw Stevie Ray Vaughn back in the day at a blues bar in San Jose called JJ's. And he left the, 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 the stage is right by the front door to the street. And he jumps off the stage and he's playing his solo and walks out into the street and is playing his guitar solo. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. I miss Stevie Ray. You know, he was one of the local guys. You could go see him yep. in Austin or Dallas every night of the week. And we did. And you go wow. to a club and there'd be three people in the club <laughs> and he'd be doing a half an hour feedback solo and voodoo child and doing a bar crawl. And you're like, calm down. This yep, isn't yep. Shea Stadium. Who are you playing for? Didn't matter, man. He was just on. Um, I wanted to go back. Obviously, Rad is 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 the focus, but uh, and 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 so much to talk about with your career, and we want to talk about your book as well. Um, but so, can you take us back to how you got cast in Rad to begin with? Sure. Uh, I'm thinking it was eighty or early 85 I did a TV show called Hill Street Blues which was actually a great TV show at the time and it kind of set dun, 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 that's right dun, 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 yeah set, dun, dun, set the bar really yes. high for all the police shows to come after that so I had, <clears throat> had a nice guest spot on that and uh, Al saw the show and just before he was getting to cast Rad it re-ran and he caught it again. So he brought me in. I didn't have to read for a casting director, which is normally what you have to do. I was brought in to read for Hal and Robert Levy, Sam Bernard. They stuck me on a mongoose bike. I read a few lines and that, that was my casting process. That was it for me. Uh, normally you have to go, wow, yeah, you, that's amazing. you have to jump through hoops of fire and, and, and they probably normally would have had me do some writing. He just wanted to see if I fit, if I looked like the part, you know, called for, and and if I could act a little bit. And I guess I could. So uh, six weeks later, probably, I was in Canada shooting that movie. And the regrettable thing is that I didn't have very much time to become proficient. I could have at least gotten on a bike. I don't even think I did that. I just showed up going, well, I can ride a bike. And, and that was... <laughs> That's clearly not enough. I mean, you see the scenes of me riding and I'm holding on for dear life. It's pretty freaking embarrassing. 
<laughs> but he did have the best stunt doubles uh, because they were the innovators of the sport that he could find. And these were my guys. I think there were five different people besides me who played Crew Jones in various <laughs> various forms, you know, including Ho- oh, Jose wow. Yanez, who did the backflip. That was, you know, that was the only trick he was doing. That's what he was brought in for. Martin Abrio did the bicycle boogie. Eddie Fiola did a lot of my double work. And um, Danny Milwe, I think, did a lot of my stuff in Hell Track. Uh, I'm thinking Beetle Rosecrans may have been in there. So it took five or six of those guys wow. to make one of me. Well, that says a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh is it, it, it beetle you mentioned just uh beetle rose rosecrans uh, i mean i feel like he's most infamously known as the first guy to go down that that horribly steep uh hell track slope um obviously hell track at the end of the at the end of the movie the race you know that that everybody was actually just terrified of this um is that accurate? that's accurate rightfully so i mean you stood at the top of that hell track wall and it looks like a death drop because it kind of is. You really have to know what you're doing. And in fact, one rider got a look at it. He just got in his van and headed back to the States. He was having no part of it. According to Beetle, wow. he was more uh, scared of his father, Everett, and what he would do to him on the way home <laughs> than, than oh, dropping in. Oh. And so how he did it is he put a ladder up on the side of the wall and would climb up halfway, three quarters way and drop in each time until he worked his way to the top. And he was only a kid, 13, maybe he was a kid. Oh, and all God. these pro riders looked at one another going, I, well, I guess we got to now, but there were some legit wipeouts, some very dangerous transition at the bottom. You're pulling a lot of G's when you come out of that thing. So, uh, wow. yeah, it, it was very dangerous. It was very dangerous. And, and, uh, I think that was Hal's innovation is to make it more than just a BMX race. Let's blow it up. Let's, you know, let's take it to the next level. And, uh, it made it iconic. I think he really foresaw X games and, and that kind of competition and, and totally. what, where this sport could go. So I think hell track was designed with that in mind. Well, in Hal Needham too, being the the director of you know Hooper, which which I I personally love and uh, and stars one of my favorite Keiths Keith, Keith uh, <laughs> from you know and Burt Reynolds obviously, um, but you know he also did Megaforce too, which is over the top guilty pleasure, and that's one of our favorite guilty pleasure movies, you know, or Dustin likes to call them masterpieces. Uh, I'm like, yeah, that's a perfect masterpiece right there, but his his idea of like his mindset was so different. I don't know if he's a director that would be able to do what he does. I don't know if he'd be able to do it now, right? In this day and age with insurance. Uh, yeah, and well, it's just a different era. In other words, uh, I got to talk to him a few times before he passed and he said he had just shown up on the set of a uh, Spider-Man movie and it was lunchtime and they still hadn't gotten one shot off yet. And he was horrified by this. It's just like, what are we talking about? 300 people standing around and we couldn't get a shot off by noon. What is this? You know, so he was, he was a very practical guy. He was always very aware of budget and, and, and how to get this done. He, he wanted the stunts to look real. He wanted them to be believable, you know? Uh, so he was, he, he was brought up in a pre CGI world 
where they use squibs and and he actually developed yeah. the, the airbag and and the air ram for stuntmen. I, I mean, he was such an innovator. I don't know if you guys have read his book, but you would just be shocked at at what what he contributed to uh, the industry behind the scenes, including a winning an Oscar for a technical award. But as far as Rad is concerned, uh, you know, he had a background in NASCAR. And he was the first guy to yeah. put the pit crew in like the sharp dressed overalls and, and have, you know, sexy cheerleaders out there. And he turned that from a bunch of good old boys racing around a track into what it is today. That's very much, uh, you can trace that back to Hal's contribution. And he was, he was very much trying to do the same thing with bicycles and rad and you see hell track and it's a NASCAR event, basically, you know, he's, he's, he's very much trying yeah. to do the same thing. And it was just, it was a little ahead, it was ahead of its time. That's all because, because it, it eventually got there. <laughs> right. It eventually, mm -hmm. eventually mm -hmm. like 35 years well, later. You know, how long like, did it take for the do tour so or, or the Huck jam or nitro circus uh, or the X games. And these are all children of hell track. Sorry. They just are. There, there was nothing like that before. Yeah. And all that stuff came after it. And, and the innovators in that sport took rad as a major inspiration. No, a hundred percent. Any idea why it took so long? Why it was unavailable for so long uh, on DVD? Yeah. Like uh, it was tied up in, in legal red tape. And I don't think there was that big of a rush to get it done. I think there was uh, an underestimation of the impact of that movie and how beloved it was. And, and uh, so I, there just didn't seem to be a sense of urgency. And so that's when the bootleggers kind of came in and took advantage of, of the situation. And frankly, that's the only way people could see it, right? So as much as it pained me for a lot yeah. of years, people ask me, where do I get it? Go to eBay, get you that bootleg, you know? Uh, so now that it's on iTunes, available on DVD and, and Blu-ray, it's blowing up. It's now gaining a new audience. We can now stop calling it a cult film because it's now kind of mainstream. Yeah. It's, it's well-known and it's gaining totally. uh, a oh, new yeah. audience and a young audience. So that's, that's exciting. Yep. Uh, Dustin and I did an episode uh, a while back, our top five favorite um, sport-themed films. And, uh, and, and we excluded a few off the list because we're like, well, these, these ones alone cannot be, they kind of hold a special place in their heart, uh, above all the others. And rad is one of those, obviously karate kid with martial arts and, you know, rad with BMX racing. And, um, you know, going back to Hal Needham, you obviously had a good connection with him, a good relationship with him because you stayed in contact, you know, after the fact, right? Well, <clears throat> there were certain events that we were invited to. I, I, I must say we weren't we weren't social after Rad until the 25th anniversary or uh, some of these uh, screenings that we were thrown in together. And th that's that's typical in mm -hmm. in the movie world. You work with somebody, yeah. you don't see him again until you until these events occur. But he was so kind and so. Um, He's just a good old boy from Arkansas, you know, and, and so uh, a true Southern gentleman. And uh, I got to spend a lot of time after uh, I'd read his book. We were we were hanging out together. So I got to grill him on some of the gory details he couldn't put in the book. 
But uh, yeah, he was uh, <laughs> a remarkable guy. He was Hollywood's highest paid and, and busiest stuntman for, for probably a couple of decades before he became a director. And he was wildly successful at that. So he only had a fourth grade education, uh, but he had uh, an incredible imagination. He was obviously physically very gifted, but one of these guys who just could get it done, man, and and uh, paid the price. You know, he broke 50 some odd bones or something stupid. So it, it kind of goes back to the, the George Clooney yeah. conversation. Yeah, it's easy to envy these guys, but to actually go through what they did to get there, most people would just take a hard pass. Even if there was a guarantee at the end of it, they would be wildly successful. And there's never a guarantee you're going to be wildly successful. Yeah. These guys just did what came to them naturally and what drove them. And so that drives me is you, you hang out with these people, you know, the Brandon Lees and da, 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 the Clooney's and Hal Needham's and, 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 and Ben Drell's and Miguel Ferrer's and, and these guys know how to get it done. And, and the common thread I would give all of them is a fearlessness fearlessness and that's a hard place to get to but once you're there the world's your oyster if you're not afraid to sleep in the street for what you love you can do anything man. and that kind of bravery that kind of aligning of your energy is very powerful it's very powerful and so this is the crowd that i've been exposed to and that's kind of thematic with rad anyway so now it's kind of how I live my life. Love that. Absolutely Amazing. Love that. Amazing. That's a, that's a really profound statement uh, about fearlessness that you're saying. Because, like, true fearlessness really isn't, like, the absence of fear as much as it is just, like, going beyond fear, in, you know, in spite of it being there. Um, yeah. and, and certainly there's you, – you have this amazing creative process. And then, you know, it's, I imagine it's very, like, ener energizing and, and, and very um, – uh, you know, invoking bravery and things like that. And then the movie comes out and it's not, uh, it's not as huge as a hit as everyone was expecting right off the bat. Mm -hmm. That's fine too. Uh, I don't think I was ready for extreme fame at that point. In fact, I wasn't, <laughs> I can tell you, uh, I, I was, uh, I was playing a different game and I've, I've, uh, I've maintained some sort of integrity as an artist and the star thing you know, it, it just wasn't, it wasn't important to me as, as I guess it should have been. Uh, I, I mostly wanted to be a working actor. That's where my value system lay and that's not good enough. Uh, in other words, I put my value in just drawing a paycheck as an actor, 95% unemployment as a union player. So having that feeling, somebody's paying me to stand up here and wear somebody else's clothes and speak lines that I, I would never say, that's a thrill. That's just an ego rush. But it, it, it kind of goes away if, if the work you're not doing is not driving you, you know, and, and not, not really fulfilling you as an artist. Uh, I, I saw Lady Gaga at a screening a couple of years ago at a Star, Born, a Star is Born, and she said, if your value system doesn't reflect who you are as an artist, you're going to have a very short career. And that just, that hit me really hard because my value system, again, was monetary based. 
and I'm not a monetary based guy. You know, I love it, but that's not, that's mm -hmm. not what I came here for. Uh, came here for the joy of doing what I do and hopefully the rest comes afterwards. So I've kind of switched and, and, and made the things that I get involved in something that I'm really behind and I really love. Now, fortunately, rad is one of those things. I get to talk to rad fans all day long and, and like you guys, they're just the best people. And, and it, and rad had that pl place in their life that really made them happy, opened them up, made them less afraid to tackle life, you know, whether they're bicyclists or not. So uh, that's a joy to me. It's not, it's not a chore. Fantastic. I, I, I want to ask about something aesthetically with the movie um, that may or may not bring you joy. And that is your uh, taupe uh, 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 wardrobe choices throughout the entire movie. Yeah. Not my wardrobe choices, dude. I'll tell you who's wardrobe. I'll tell you who it was. Remember the, uh, Scene where Lori is like explaining sponsorship to me. And she's like, that guy, he rides for Coke. Yeah. That was the uh, costume designer. And in fact, nobody would wear that Coke one <laughs> Coke onesie. So he's like, I'll put it on. So, you know, uh, Jerry was his name. Lovely guy. But yeah, he had a different sensibility. About we, so we were kind of commenting a lot about it because I'm like, I wonder if that's intentional because at the end when you it makes the red pop even more, you know, so. <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, the, the goofy nature of the rad racing T-shirts and the hell track outfit, they're supposed to look homemade, right? They're supposed to look like a bunch of school kids yeah. put it together. But unfortunately, yeah. they've become iconic. And now you see these 50 year old guys in a red shirt with a star on it. It's just like, wow. Hey. <laughs> Hell yeah. You know what I'm saying? It's not really cool, but just because of the nature, you know, <laughs> the iconic nature of it, it, you know, these guys walking around in a cape practically. It's fun. Hey, look, if a, if a, if a six-year-old can rock a cape, uh, then I guess a 50-year-old can rock a rad right. rash guard. Right. Uh, <laughs> really? <laughs> I guess. I've never seen it, but it could happen, so... <laughs> Um, so you at no point were like, oh, really? Brown again, Jerry? <laughs> right? Again, I was just so happy to be there, dude. I, I, you're, you're, yeah. You know? I just, yeah. I, I, and and I, I had had a, a movie experience before that didn't go great. I really wanted to get this one right. So so I was I was on good behavior. And and uh, uh, Hal and, and Martin tell a story of... Uh, ass sliding and that ass sliding water was cold. It was just frozen snow. And so Hal had, Hal had Martin do a test run to make sure it was safe. And he said, when you hit the water at the bottom, you know, it looked like it was the greatest thing that's ever happened to you. Cause I don't want these actors to be scared, you know, and he did popped up like it was the greatest thing that's ever happened to him. And, uh, <laughs> and then they put us in, in wetsuits and we did it and it's just unspeakably cold water but i would have done it a dozen more times if howard had asked me to you know he was he had been used to working with a lot of stars at this point like a lot of stars like those cannonball run with oh yeah. sammy and frank and dina and shirley mcclain he said he would 
go out to the the set and nobody would show up until everybody else was on set. So nobody would ever show up on set. So the one thing he asked me the day before filming started wow. was just please be on time. Why well, I've never been late in my life. What are you talking about? You know, so a lot of the things that he was used to dealing with attitude and, and, and star tantrums and all that, that, that was not in my wheelhouse. Right. You know? And, and I was, I was bound and determined to just be, who I am just easy to get along with, you know, and not be that prima donna. And uh, now the story can be told that the producers actually wanted Iron Man, uh, Robert Downey for Crew Jones. And uh, Al said, no, he's arrogant. Really? Yeah, Al said, no, he's arrogant. <laughs> so that's how I got to the role. Yeah. Did you see him in tough turf? Come on. He doesn't even, he can't even ride a bike in that. That's right. <laughs> Listen, that's, that's not the thing. It, 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 it just, it paid for, I get it. It's just, it paid for me to, me to be nice. It kind of superseded my lack of talent. And, uh, that, that's funny you say that because, um, oftentimes Dustin and I will joke about how genuinely kind we are. And I think my, my attitude is that's the only way I know how to be like, you know, on time and nice. And it's, it's nice, uh, to because i for lack of a better word it's nice to know that you got the opportunity you got with this movie be as as one of the qualifications well you're a good guy so you're easy to work with you're not a diva you're not a prima donna you know well it's an important component if you're going to be working with somebody 10 12 hours a day you don't want to be locked into just a cage match no so for sure for sure how understood that at the time and it wasn't a star-driven movie it was an action-driven movie, and the star was the bikes, and and the the nemesis was not Bart Connor. The nemesis was the corporations, you know. So, totally, yeah. It, it had it had a lot of Easter eggs that I could only really appreciate later. That as goofy as it is, and the twins and their outfits and all that stuff, it had it has a real pure message. The race sequences, <laughs> the race sequences still hold up. I still get goosebumps watching that qualifying race. Those goofy synthesizers, yeah, you know. So yeah, it, it came together. Look, uh, John Farnham's uh, soundtrack is uh, played on a regular basis, much to the dismay of my wife, oh. uh, perhaps. But uh, <laughs> it's a part of my workout anthem, especially being at home during COVID era you know, having to work out at home and having needing music to get me pumped up. Right. And, uh, you know, break the ice. As soon as that comes on, I'm just like, yeah, let's do this. Come on. Somebody, Come on. Burpees. Somebody said, somebody down. said, if you yeah. play that during your workout, you'll go through a wall. I, I, I almost <laughs> did. <laughs> Well, and you're saying, you know, the thing about Hal Needham, yeah, you look at the movies he's done, just Hooper and Cannibal Run alone with the star quality, and 
but with that added component of you know these mega stars who are kind of used to getting everything they want so to speak over the top so i look we look at you know rad we're watching rad and i'm like you can tell you shire was huge you know she's still like the the even though the cast was a, a mixture of relatively unknowns or new up-and-coming actors you still had this quality to it as well with with the veteran actors that are in the film that must have added a, a, a level of appreciation you know especially being a, a young actor coming in and working with some solid veterans that you know maybe an inspiration or uh you know you might have learned a thing or two from them right oh it was huge i mean they were all stars when i was growing up ray and and uh, uh talia uh, um uh, and jack these these were guys i grew up watching and then i got into acting and then the next thing you know you're on the set with them man it was some heady stuff you know, I mean, it was really heady for me. Yeah. And, and that was the fun part because I was an actor. I spent all my time in acting class and on the skate park to stand toe to toe with Talia Shire, a Coppola, Hollywood royalty was unbelievable. Isn't this the day you're supposed to make up your SATs? I know, Mom, but. But what? If you always wanted to go to college, that's been the plan. This is a very important race. Would you look at the stakes here? Besides, I really think I can get this one. I think I've got a chance. You have a chance with an education. I know about that, Mom. But Dad always told me, when your gut talks to you, you listen. Oh, Christopher, that won't wash with me. Just because he's dead doesn't mean anything has changed. I know, Mother. I don't want to hear any more about it. I bet Dad would have understood. Oh, shit. You know, I have to say, um, and, and, and if you're not comfortable talking more about it, that's totally fine. But, you know, uh, Brandon Lee was was a huge influence on me personally. Um, and and his his passing, his death hit me really hard. Um, I told a story to uh, another actor we had interviewed recently um, that my parents said you know do you want to go down to disneyland i lived in the bay area they said do you want to go to disneyland or do you want to go up to seattle and go to brandon's grave because it, it's such an impact on me i'm like i don't want to go to disneyland <laughs> i want to go up to his grave and because i was a huge martial artist at the time and uh big fan of bruce lee obviously and so going to his grave really was meaningful to me in a in a, in a, in a really powerful way and he was such a bright light and obviously sincerest condolences go out to you as his friend um because he he i just want you to know personally that he was a huge uh part of my youth and still is to this day i think his spirit carries on um and he's just he was i obviously you know you have a much deeper connection but uh he just was a huge part of my life i just want you to know that i'm so happy to hear that i mean <clears throat> he was he was a mystic first i think but he was a real artist in the true sense of the word and uh, even though he didn't have to struggle really for for work like a lot of us did he really picked a hard road and that road is be a martial artist and if you're going to be a martial artist on film you're going to have to be better than your dad period if you're not as good as your dad, it's going to be a mess. 
So he understood that he had, he had the guts and the determination and I, I'm real sure he did it. And nobody would be prouder of him than this old man uh, for going into that line of work yeah. and, and for achieving what he did. But we both, you know, all of us, we were banging around Hollywood trying to get stuff done. And, but it was really important that, that we make an impact, you know, and, and he was very uh, circumspect and, and very driven and, and focused on what he wanted. And he seemed to have a real understanding that he wasn't going to be around, around very long. And he talked about it and he lived his life like that. No regrets, wow. taking nothing for granted. This could be your last day, so make it count make it count but in a way that's joyful you know again going for what made him happy uh, which was hanging out with his friends and, you know going to acting class and doing theater and studying under Dan Inosanto things that just filled him up you know including poetry he, he, he had a poet's heart so when he threw me the script of, of the, uh, the crow and I'm reading it and it's got the rave in it that was his favorite poem and he knew it by heart it's a long poem and wow. and so there's synchronicities about his life and his passing in particular that are poetic and uh that it resonates with you guys and his fans and the people that, that visit his grave you know that's important that's important so thank you yeah no it's it's just so nice to hear um, the, from the people that knew him, what a beautiful soul he was. So, yeah, he was. He, he was a beautiful soul and, and generous. Uh, and we just became brothers almost overnight. Miguel introduced us. Uh, he did a pilot with Miguel called Kung Fu: The Next Generation. That was a TV movie, I think. Yep. And uh, Miguel's like, I'm hanging with Bruce Lee's son. You got to meet this guy. I'll meet him. Who wouldn't want to meet Bruce Lee's son, right? See what's going on. And then he joined an acting class I was in, and, and that was it. We were just off to the races. It was the right time. We were both young and single and, and on a mission and uh, knew how to have a great time. And so it was just, it was a heady time, and nothing had been set in stone. You know, we hadn't made our bones as actors really yet, even though I'd done rad a couple of years before I met him. Uh, it was it was very much artists on the make and on and and on the come and, and because I'd done rad I had a little kind of edge on him in that I had some street cred for a movie I did at that point he was still kind of Bruce's son you know at that point yeah yeah I think Laser Mission or something came up either be right before that or right after that so right after that he he uh, shot that ball. Uh, we were friends and then he did uh rapid fire and obviously the crow so it was a pretty showdown a little tokyo that's right yeah not that many films actually you know just kind of a very yeah. short uh filmography and mm -hmm. and that sped up towards the end of our relationship you know before he passed away so a lot of calls on film sets or visiting one another and i would be on tour and you know but LA was the hub and, and uh, it was an exciting time to be out here because of the, just because of the artists we were hanging out with. 
you know, some that I've mentioned, others included, you know, Brad Pitt and uh, Dermot Mulroney and, uh, oh my God, it was just a cascade of talent and to be out in Hollywood when this was going on, you know, this was, uh, this was an unbelievably exciting time, man. unbelievably exciting. And, and I don't know of a more exciting time to be in Hollywood. I'm kind of a Hollywood historian. It's why I live out here. And it's kind of important <laughs> to me. It's a short, but a very colorful one. But as far as what era would I have most like to have been a part of, I was a part of it. No doubt. And I, I will tell you on our short list of, of movies we wanted to cover and guests we wanted to interview, you were at the top of that list. We were like, we got to get, we got to get Bill Allen on this show because when we talk about rad and just talk about his life, talk about his career and, and having you on, is such a, such an honor sincerely because, you know, yeah, we talk about Clooney and we talk about Miguel Ferrer. I, you know, we, we, we both equally respect the heck out of those guys. Uh, but having you on and talk about music, talk about a little bit of everything is, is, is such a great thing. So you and following your bliss and, and, and your attitude is, it needs to be heard by other people. And, and, and having you talk about your experience, your journey, being on this show is going to reach so many more people and they're going to go, oh yeah, maybe, maybe I don't need to do the thing I dread doing. Maybe I, maybe I should start doing the thing I, I really love. Yeah, we got a short time to get this thing right, man. And, and I, I, I try not to judge anybody or anything, but um, to decide, okay, I'm going to be miserable to get to happiness. It's just, it's not the way. The way to happiness is to be happy. No. Yeah. Period. And circumstances, yep. they don't mean anything. It's what's going on between your ears. That means everything. I can go down the street and I can find a homeless person that's happy with his station in life. And I can go west of Beverly Hills and find a person who's miserable with their BMW and mansion. Both are true. You know, yeah. it'd be totally so totally. Uh, it's um, it's really important we get this right. And so that that was the realization. I'm, I'm getting older. I don't want to have to come back to this mess. I, I want to jump off this coil. <laughs> and how do I do that through bliss and love and 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 language of the saints is is joy so that's the language that i'm using these days and it's working out man that's beautiful yeah it's working out it's working out you know i just got i, right I did, just got back from seattle and uh you know i've got such a deep connection with that place and, and brandon in that ground and uh the day after i got there i found out i lost a friend to alcoholism which was strange but mm -hmm. my point is I didn't go visit his grave because it, it was just too much. I did it a couple of years ago. It's way too much for me. So I know where he is and I know where the joy lies. And I don't have to connect to that grief that, that held me back for so mm. long. I can appreciate <laughs> that I, I survived it, but let's dwell on the joyful side, you know, not the tragic totally. side, not the, the, the final day of his life or the final moments all that came before that and i'm a lucky guy to have experienced a lot of that you know so to be stuck in grief oh poor me we're going to be this and we're going to do that didn't happen oh well it's really been an honor to have you on the show thank you oh man i had a great time thanks so much you guys asked really good questions so thanks for letting me stretch out a little bit hopefully we'd love to have you back on if you're uh, if you're open to it happy to yeah it's a great show yeah thanks guys
Right Good on. Work. Thanks. We'll catch you at Hell Track down right the road. On. Okay, guys. Yeah, really. Take care. <laughs> oh, listen, I just wanted to say goodbye and remind you that the good guys always win, even in the 80s. All right. Thanks so much for listening. We really appreciate it. Don't forget to subscribe and give us a four... Is it five-star rating? <laughs> Don't forget to subscribe and give us a five-star rating on iTunes. We really... Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a five-star rating on iTunes. If you listen to us on Spotify, that's great, too. And you can find us on the internet. <laughs> Don't forget to check out our website at $2LateFee.com and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at $2LateFeePodcast. We'll see you next time. We did it. You're listening to the Geekscape Network.